I bet you thought when we went to Orkney that we couldn't go any further north on folk on foot. Well, you were wrong, because now we're in Shetland, this archipelago of islands in the North Atlantic, which is imbued with history. The Picts were here before the Vikings came along and then the Scots and you can still see the marks of that history in the landscape here. The weather is wild and windy sometimes but sometimes the sun breaks through and it's just absolutely glorious. There's tradition here, there's music and craft handed down from family to family and there's wildlife and I think that's probably what attracted our guest today. Jenny Sturgeon makes delicate beautiful music which is inextricably intertwined with the natural world and it's not surprising that she's made her home here on Shetland. It is a wet day, it's a windy day so let's go and find some shelter in Jenny's home. Jenny, lovely to see you. Can we come in? Yeah. Thank you. What a lovely house, Jenny, and, and what a, an amazing view from these picture windows looking out over the sea. What can we see out here? Well, we can look right into Leavenwick Bay and there's an amazing old graveyard there with it. It's kind of mounded up. I've heard people say that they think there's a Viking boat under there, but based on the land and the way the land goes, the graveyard shouldn't be that shape. But that's kind of to the south, and there's the sandy beach of Leavenwick, and then we actually look straight out over the sea, and the next stop would be Norway. And a bit further north, we've got Noness, which is that spit of land. And if we were a little bit higher, we'd be able to see the island of Musa, where there's the best-preserved brochs in Scotland. So that's uh, just and the Brock the is a, a Pictish building. I believe so, yeah. 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 So you, you sense the history here. Yeah. You can see the sheep here too. Your neighbours have got sheep. Yeah, John's out. sheep. And, and sheep <laughs> are important to Shetland, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. For eating and for wool. Like Obviously the, the wool industry is such a massive, massive thing in Shetland. We've got Shetland Wool Week, which brings people from all over the world. And that's in October normally. And what brought you to Shetland? Because you're not from here originally, are you? No, uh, from Aberdeenshire originally, but I came up to work on Fair Isle doing an RSPB contract on seabirds, which is where I met my partner, Will. And several years later, after we'd been living in Aberdeen while I was doing my PhD in seabird ecology, he got a job here. And we knew that we really liked it here, so we thought we'd give it a go and then after a few months, knew that we loved it and so decided to stay. What is it about the place that you love? I think it just changes all the time with the light and the sea is constantly changing. Like, as you were saying, the view out the window, every minute I see something different out there and I think there's a bit of a wildness to it with the weather but also kind of harks back to my upbringing in Aberdeenshire. The sense of community here is so strong and folk help each other out and we know everybody who lives nearby and it's just really friendly and similar to Is, is there a creative community here as well because I get a real sense of music and poetry and painting and jewellery making and craft on Shetland. Yeah absolutely it's very very creative and I think 
part of that is maybe that people do lots of different jobs here generally or they can turn their hand to lots of different things so somebody who maybe works for the council is also a crofter and makes chairs or fiddles or you know people are really into stuff making things with their hands and very practical and I think that it's kind of translated to this amazing craft and art industry up here. I'm guessing that somebody who likes seabirds, as you do, and who's got a PhD in seabird ecology, is absolutely in her element here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of seabirds do you see? Um, well, all sorts. From the house, it's really interesting going back down to Aberdeenshire and the dawn chorus there of songbirds. And we have a dawn chorus of fulmers who are nesting just on the cliffs below the house and things like curly feeding in the fields below the garden and gannets coming past the window and tysties, so they're the black guillemots feed in the bay and we'll often hear red-throated divers calling as well so they feed just on, on the water outside the house so yeah, a complete mix of bird life which is brilliant. And, and, and what's the lockdown been like here on an island like this where I think there's been a relatively low incidence of, of Covid? Yeah. Have you been very isolated here? Um, it's not felt isolated at all actually, we've been so lucky I think even just you know our house is a, a little bungalow standalone house and we've got a garden so even when there was the strictest lockdown and we were able to go for a walk we can just walk from the house down to the beach and around the on the banks on the cliffs and for most of lockdown we were in sort of the lowest tier which meant that we could have people in the house and to some degree live life as we would have done before. So, Has it been a creative time for you? Have you been writing? Um, the first sort of six months, not at all. Well, I did quite a lot of art, so I, I've got a small art business. So most of it's lino prints. What sort of things do you make lino prints of? Um, you can probably guess. <laughs> Birds? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Birds and nature. Yeah, that's my, my go-to. So I did quite a lot of that, but I didn't really do any music at all. I think because of the uncertainty over my job and the career and... What because was there was no touring and yeah. you couldn't go out and do anything. Yeah, those first kind of five or six months I spent digging the garden and doing art rather than music. And then when things started to pick up again, I've been writing a lot since then. So it has been really productive, but in different ways. <laughs> but more recently, yeah, in the last six months, it's been very productive. Have you got a new song that you'd care to share with us? Yes. This first one I wrote just a few weeks ago. I've been doing some online sort of songwriting prompt writing with the musician and friend Lucy Farrell and she came with a poem and I read the poem and then had 20 minutes to kind of come up with a response and out of that came the bones of this song about a blackbird that's been singing in my garden and it's one of the joys of lockdown has been seeing the blackbirds fledging and there's a tree just outside the kitchen window that he always sits on and sings and just the sound of the blackbird is absolutely gorgeous. We should say it's quite remarkable that there is a tree. Yeah. Because there are, there are very few trees in Shetland. We've got some, you know, reasonably sized ones. Yeah, you've got some here. Yeah, no, 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 these are the first yeah. that I've encountered since I came here to the island. The blackbird starts singing through the gloaming. His chorus is our
around us but we've come to a rather spectacular spot shrouded in mist yeah. what can I see at the top of the hill there it's the Summerhead lighthouse and on a good day you can see right out to Fair Isle which is part of Shetland so yeah. we're right on the south side of the island now yes. aren't we? yeah, yeah the mainland island. yeah that's right yeah. yeah and so if we walk up there um, even though there is mist do you yeah. think there'll be some bird life yeah, around? Yeah, there should be. I've got my binoculars just in case. But there might even be puffins. We, we shall see. <laughs> will there be cake? There will definitely be cake. Oh, well, let's get out there. <laughs> it's a bit of a walk up the hill, but we'll, we'll make a go of it. And there's an orca up there. There's a plastic orca a plastic halfway orca. up. So. <laughs> but have you seen any real orca recently? Um, yeah, we see them pretty much twice a month, I suppose. And they're quite often seen from here. 
So yeah, they're just around and about all the time, which is quite amazing. Spectacular, yeah. yes. Do you get lots of people coming with their cameras and crowding around? Yeah, and... <laughs> there's a cetacean WhatsApp group in Shetland and there's 300 odd people on it. So if orca are seen anywhere around the islands, somebody will ping a message and then everybody knows where to go. You know, I've seen them so many times now, so lucky, but it never gets boring seeing them because you can see so much of them when they move through the water and it's always an interesting behaviour or something to see, so. And this lighthouse is protecting the shipping, presumably. Does it still work? Yes, it does. Yeah, it does, yeah. I don't think any lighthouses are staffed anymore, are they? No, no, it's all automated. Once a year they sound the foghorn as well. Well, just to make sure it's just, working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was some dead birds stuck in it last time, so it took a while to get going. <laughs> right. <laughs> So we just come to the edge of the cliff here really and we're looking down a steep, steep cliff and across to another green swathe towering up actually on the other side of the, an inlet of the sea. And the, the birds are just gathered in their scores and hundreds down there on the, on the rock which sticks out over the sea below us. And the ocean's a kind of leaden grey colour today because the cloud's low and the, and the mist is lowering. It's very dramatic. <laughs> We're also surrounded by lots of thrift, so it's this lovely pink flower which is found all over the coast. And there's a big big breeze blowing us towards the edge. <laughs> there's a, a lot of guillemots just down here. Oh, a huge crowd of them. They're on eggs and then razorbills out on the sea and then loads of fulmers on this, this cliff here. They're just dotted all the way up the cliff in amongst the greenery. Yeah. And so are they sitting on, on nests there, or are they yes. just roosting? Are they on nests? Yeah, there's a few kittiwakes as well down at the bottom. So that one that just came in there is a fulmer. They, they kind of in some ways look a little bit similar, that they've got grey wings and a white body. But that one that's just come off the cliffs and flying underneath us now, going around in a circle, that's, that's a kittiwake. They're a bit more delicate than the fulmers, and they make the kittiwake, kittiwake sound. Uh -huh. This is amazing, I've never seen such a large concentration of birds sitting on nests before. Oh, and there's a shag right down at the bottom. Oh, and a puffin! There's a puffin! Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Can you see it? Yes. Just sitting on that little outcrop of rock there. It's bright orange feet oh. and amazing bill. Very colourful. And are there lots of them here usually? Yeah, it's very hit or miss whether you see them, so sometimes there'll be hundreds in and they'll come right up to your feet and nibble on your shoelaces oh, really? and things like that. Yeah, they're really not fussed about people, but it's yeah, hit or miss as to whether they're here, depending on the weather, I think, and whether they're feeding out at sea. And there's quite often little wrens on these cliffs as well. Can't hear any singing at the moment, but they'd like it here. And it sounds like it's a sort of echo chamber down there and the, you can hear the sound echoing around yeah. of their cries, can't you, yeah, in, yeah. In, off, the, off the rocks of the cliffs. So we've reached the top of the of the hill and the lighthouse building is in front of us now, painted white, the light turning gently above it. Quite a windy 
spotless Jenny yeah, I know. <laughs> without I think, a breath actually <laughs> it's quite elevated it's probably the most windy spot we could have chosen for right now but we'll find a sheltered spot and I should imagine I'm just trying to imagine now that the view from here would be absolutely spectacular on a clear day it is yeah you can see to the north to Fitful Head which is a really high cliff and then round to the southwest is Fair Isle on a good day it just feels very close and there's the museum so we should go and go and check that out and yeah. um, there's also a very good cafe and would you play for us perhaps i think i probably should um, yeah, the guitar, the guitar, guitar the all the way yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rude not to. let's go in <laughs> so we're coming into the engine room of the lighthouse here and there are three great engines i'm a sucker for an engine i have to say i love all the brass and copper fittings and it's painted green and there's pipe work that mysteriously goes up into the ceiling and there are wheels that you can turn and there are even oil cans and who wouldn't love an oil can on, on the wall oh, there, the historic <laughs> oil cans on, on the wall displayed and the reason for this lighthouse being here is written up here on the great big cylinder and uh, it says here, many ships have founded off southern Shetland and hundreds of people died. Norse King Harold of Man and the Isles, travelling with his new bride, were lost in the Sombra Roost in 1242. And I'm thinking that a roost, Jenny, might be, is that a, a current or a... Yeah, it's like yeah. a really turbulent bit of water just off Sombra Head. The Old Norse, Dunru, means noise, and roost is a strong current. The roost. The roost, I think. Right, so in 1242 they were lost. The Danish boat St. Johannes was wrecked in 1804. Four men drowned and three survived. And ironically, in 1820, the Freemason carrying materials from Peterhead for the building of Summerhead Lighthouse was wrecked at the entrance to Grutness Bow. So it's obviously a very dangerous spot yeah. here. And you can believe it, can't you, on a day like this with the weather coming Absolutely. in? Absolutely, and Shetland does quite often get fog bound, and so I think it's quite easy for boats historically and you know even more recently to get on the rocks and uh, even little boats travel far out east to get round the roost. <laughs> <laughs> but you have happier memories of this place I think. Yeah that's right um, I actually got married here. Oh did you? Three years ago I think. Um, three years? I should know that. <laughs> I'm Who's gonna say, counting? I'm going to say three years ago. <laughs> Check with Will later. Okay, yeah. But uh, yeah just there's the amazing cafe building right next door that's got this incredible vista. Hopefully we'll get to see a little bit of that today even through the, the mist and fog but it had been really awful weather. We got married in October and it had been awful weather for about a month and the day of our wedding completely cleared and it was just you know beautiful sunset, amazing. We could see right out onto Fair Isle which is where we actually met and it was just a pretty magical day. Not that you know, weather really makes a difference, but it was nice not to get totally drenched. <laughs> <laughs> How romantic is that? And did you have music at the wedding? We had a playlist of some cheesy sort of 80s and 90s pop, but we didn't have any live music. <laughs> going to sing for us. The song Man from my album The Living Mountain. I adapted an Anne Shepherd poem for this track. It's from her poem called Fires. Firelight, the quiet heart of a little room out of the night will come where the gathered softly spell now 
It's raining as, as well as blowing. God, I bet you're glad it wasn't like this on your wedding day. <laughs> very, very much so. <laughs> it's quite a good spot if we walk up, walk up those steps. We can see over the other side and down the cliffs. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. The sea's heaving away down there, isn't it? Is, it is. Yeah. Feels like it's getting quite, a bit wilder. Quite somewhere. threatening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a high wall, high stone wall and then steep cliffs and, and you can see the boiling waves bashing into the rocks down there that looks really nasty doesn't it if you, you wouldn't want to come across that in a it's such a beautiful misty. color though isn't it i always think when it's a wild day like this it's just absolutely magical in a way well you're seeing <laughs> you a, a, it's there, bright blue just around the rocks yeah. isn't it bright pale blue and then dark gray that's one thing i when i moved up here i thought i would really miss lots of trees but actually because the sea is so changes all the time within a day you know every hour it's there's something different to see and I just love it there's <laughs> <laughs> a couple more gannets now going across that across yes. the scaries they've got a, a large wingspan and the adults have got a sort of yellow head and their body is white and then their wingtips are black they're quite incredible birds they just kind of follow the waves really and they fish in a really interesting way in that they fold their wings right back. It's almost like a torpedo going into the sea to catch their fish. And there's a, a bonksy there. Wow. They're predators. They quite often will take chicks or eggs off the cliffs. In July, it's an amazing place to come up here because there's what we call jumplings coming off the cliffs. So all the young guillemots jump off the cliffs. And we've had some really tense days stood with our binoculars watching them and then every now and again you know a bonksy will come and get one and you think the parents of this chick have spent all this time rearing them on these cliffs and then they're just about to fledge and the bonksy comes along and grabs one it's quite nature in tooth and claw exactly yeah there's the shetland drama obviously the crime drama but you know the <laughs> the birds are just as exciting they're just as vicious sometimes as, vicious, as well yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. any when did your interest in birds begin Probably in childhood, in a way, my folks are really into nature and the outdoors and we were just always outside camping and visiting different reserves and kind of fell into working in birds really during my undergrad, went and studied lots of different Where did species. you study? So I studied in Edinburgh and went and worked on lots of different projects, including for the RSPB and was really lucky to get to go out to Canada to study hummingbird behaviour and was in South Africa working for eight months studying sparrow weavers, so they weave these incredible intricate nests in trees really really interesting projects and it just so happened that they all happened to be on birds and then I just kind of fell into that line of work and ended up working in seabirds which as much when you say working in seabirds what yeah. does working in seabirds involve <laughs> well um, I did a contract for the RSPB working on Fair Isle we were roped up to go down the cliffs to go and catch seabirds and put little GPS loggers on them to find out where they were going to hunt for fish 
and a lot of the birds were going from Fairell right down to near Peterhead and Fraserburgh to go and catch fish, which is a hell of a long way. The really interesting thing was being able to get these geolocators, these GPS loggers back. You plug it into a computer and it shows up like a Google map of where they've been and it's Wonderful. just amazing to see that. So yeah, that's what I was doing. What when is I was the fascination there. for you about birds? What is it that, that draws you to them? I, that's a very good question. I think it's probably as much the landscape and the location where they are, but I would love to be able to fly. That's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> so you would like to take off from this cliff yeah. and head out over the sea? Yeah, <laughs> and not just plummet off the edge. <laughs> this is absolutely beautiful. We're looking at St Ninian's Island, which is joined to the mainland by this sand tombola. So it's a spit of sand that joins the two. And yeah, I think only in the like the biggest storms you can't get across, but otherwise... Can we walk down then? Yeah, let's walk do across it. The... I've never walked across a tombola before. Oh. <laughs> a new experience. <laughs> are they quite rare? I have no idea. I think they probably <laughs> are. It's a rather gorgeous phenomenon because the sand curves round mm. in a rather attractive way with the sea rolling up on both sides of it and joins the two pieces of land. Well I suppose this is a good time to talk about your Living Mountain project. Yeah. That was inspired by the famous book by Nan Shepherd. Would you tell us just a little bit about that book? It's an incredible quite small book really for everything that's in there and all the descriptions but Nan Shepherd wrote the book in the well during the Second World War so in the 40s and it was all about her experiences in the Cairngorms but not necessarily centered around her it was centered around the different elements of that region so the geology and the ecology and yeah just that kind of connection to that land and being in that place and tell us a bit about her. What sort of a person was she? I think, by all accounts, a very interesting person. She was born at the end of the 1800s in a time that would have been quite difficult, really, for women to make their own path for themselves, particularly in the sort of nature writing, which probably didn't really exist at the time, or the kind of exploration side of things. And she lived quite an alternative life. She never married and she was a teacher, so she taught people how to teach. And what was it about the Cairngorms that she was drawn to? Probably the accessibility, one thing from where she lived near Aberdeen. And it is a wild and exciting place. It can be very beautiful one minute and incredibly dangerous the next. And it is very dramatic, but I suppose at that time when she was probably exploring it, there maybe weren't that many people doing the same thing. I just want to pause to reflect on the experience of walking along a beach with the sea on both sides, <laughs> which I've, ne I've never done before. The sea is always only on one side. Sur surround sand sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's the sea's in stereo. Summer on the high plateau can be delectable as honey, 
It can also be a roaring scourge. To those who love the place, both are good, since both are part of its essential nature. And it is to know its essential nature that I am seeking here. To know, that is, with the knowledge that is the process of living. This is not done easily, nor in an hour. It is a tale too slow for the importance of our age, not of immediate enough import for its desperate problems. Yet it has its own rare value. It is, for one thing, a corrective of glib assessment. One never quite knows the mountain, nor itself in relation to it. However often I walk in them, the hills hold astonishment for me. There is no getting accustomed to them. What is it about the way Nan Shepherd writes that you find so intriguing? I think she's got so many lovely descriptions, but also there's no ego, which is just so refreshing in nature writing. And I mean, she was very modest about her work, yeah. wasn't she? Because the book wasn't actually published until the 1970s. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So did she think that it was not worth publishing or did she just hide it away? I think she sent the manuscript to Neil Gunn when she'd finished it and he said that he thought it was brilliant but that just now wasn't the time to publish it because it was just at the end of the war, there was a paper shortage. He didn't think it would really capture people's attention at that time in history and she sent a couple of letters to one or two publishers not even the manuscript and got rejections and then put it in a drawer and forgot about it and she was being interviewed for a, a newspaper or a magazine and the article came out and sort of said this incredible artist gave up <laughs> and she would have been quite old at that point and how you kind of think that must have been such an awful thing to read about yourself and it was maybe reading that and seeing that headline and that experience of that interview that made her go, do you know what, I'm going to publish this book, which otherwise might have got lost. And then it's had a, an amazing renaissance recently, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so she self-published it initially through the Aberdeen University Press, I think, and then it's kind of captured people's attention and it's, you know, she's on our £5 note in Scotland. And What do you think she'd have made of that? I have no idea, but I spoke to her literary executor and he was saying that he thinks she would have found it hilarious. <laughs> Especially because the photo of her is her with a headband on and apparently it was actually she was having a photo shoot for something and at the end of the photo shoot she picked up a bit of camera film and pinned it around her head and that's the picture that's on the £5 note. So it was just like a joke photo which has now become the photo of Nan Shepherd. An iconic image of Scottish yeah. Yeah. natural writing and yeah. art history. That's it. You should say now we've just come off the Tombolo yep. and we're climbing up now on St Ninian's Isle. Yeah, that's right. So we can look back and see the swathe of the beach and the sea on both sides. Unfortunately the rain's still holding off. So let's well climb so onto the isle. So is this an inhabited island? It's uninhabited. People farm sheep, like they have sheep that are brought across to feed on the island. But yeah, it's uninhabited. I think it has been since the 1700s or something. So just a good spot for a walk now, I suppose. <laughs> so are there any buildings on this island? Um, there's the remnants of a, an old chapel that we'll go and have a look at just now. Oh, that would be great. Um, just walking through, through the rabbit holes in the yeah. sand dunes here. <laughs> 
So when it came to recording The yeah. Living Mountain, where did you go? I went with Andy Bell from Hudson Records. From Hudson Records, good friend and amazing producer Andy Bell to Clashnetty Arts Centre which is in the Cairngorms National Park and it's owned and run by a friend of mine who's an amazing scrap metal sculptor. And what's that place like? Oh, it's amazing. It's an old granite cottage absolutely in the middle of nowhere in a way. You drive down this long windy track and in the winter it gets completely snowed in and she has to walk up the track with a sledge for her shopping and oh, really? things like that. So yeah, completely beautifully isolated in a way there's only natural sounds. And so, you know, we put out a, a microphone and every day recorded the sounds of birds and the river and so it's all very much rooted in that place. And then used those sounds in between the music or alongside the music. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, it's such a beautiful piece of work and hearing you describe the process, it's so immersive. Yeah. The process that you've yeah. been through, that you become immersed in the place and in the writing and then sort of exude it out into the, yeah. into the music. And I think even the, the recording process of that was immersive as well, you know, being in this place with barely any internet unless you're standing on on one leg in the attic kind of thing. You know, it felt like the whole project has been, like you say, very immersive. Would you sing another of the songs for us? Yes, absolutely. From that, which one are you going to sing for us? Um, I'll sing a track called Air and Light, which was written for Chapter 6 of Nan Shepherd's book. Tell us about Chapter 6. Uh, yeah, it's all de descriptions of, of the air and light of the Cairngorms, and it does have a magical quality to it. You can have these crystal clear days when you can see what seems like for hundreds of miles in any direction and equally it can then change and then the fog comes down so very much things that I've experienced being up there and that was the first song I wrote actually for, on the album. part of the mountain which does not come to an end with its rocks and its soil. It has its own air and it is to the quality of its air that is due to the endless diversity of its colourings, brown for the most part in themselves. As soon as we see them clothed in air the hills become blue. Every shade of blue from opalescent milky white to indigo is there. They are most opulently blue when rain is in the air. Then the gullies are violet, gentian and delphinium hues with fire in them, lurk in the folds.
wander along the hurried stream, the water logged feel it soft underfoot. A beauty in the rise and fall, between the sun and rose rock, my thoughts drift away. An illusion of light, feel the When it came to recording the album, you had a special guitar made. That's right, yeah. <laughs> My... How was it made? <laughs> it was just pure luck in some regards. A really good friend of mine, Rory Dowling, is a guitar maker, and I was keen to play a Scottish-built guitar on the album because it felt more appropriate than playing something that was made in China or in the States. And so I called him up and just said, is there any chance I can borrow one of your guitars? And he said, oh, I'll, I'll do you one better. I'll make, I'll make something for the project, which was amazing. He was so enthused by it. And uh, yeah, we went up to Braemar and got this piece of wood that was an old bar shelf from the pub there. And he turned it into a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> can you still see the marks of the yeah. drinkers putting their drinks down on it yeah. and things like that? He's just such an amazing craftsman. He turned this piece of wood, which I thought, I don't know what you could do with that. I probably would have thrown it on a bonfire or something, you know. It didn't look like anything particularly. And he's kind of treated the front, but on the inside you can still see the old rings of 
wine bottles or whiskey bottles. And I love this idea that that shelf, you know, Nan Shepherd herself might have been in the pub and rested a glass on it. This is just the thought that there could be that connection, and who knows. Was it all from the shelf or did he introduce other woods as well? The body of the guitar is all from the shelf and then there's a bit of an old pier in Anstruther, which is actually where I did my PhD field work, so there was a lovely connection with that. And then we had a day up walking around the Cairngorms and collected some lichen and some dead heather and they turned that into other parts of the guitar so there's lichen fretboard markers and a heather inlay on the kind of cutout in the middle which is just absolutely stunning amazing yeah i mean it's such a beautiful instrument and the the wood is very light we should say it's a very light color because when you talk about a bar shelf i immediately think of dark wood but actually it's a pale colored guitar and it looks quite quite narrow yeah yeah because of the size of the shelf there wasn't too much leeway as to how wide the guitar could be, how deep it could be. And so in order to compromise for that, because the body had to be quite narrow, he made the sides really thick. And Rory was telling me that he actually makes all his guitars like that now, as a result of making the, the Nan Taran. Were you worried that it might turn out not to sound so good because it was made from all these materials? I, I think when I saw the shelf initially, I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. But knowing the skills of Rory and he was working with his amazing apprentice, Saki Morris, who actually made the beautiful inlay and did a lot of work on the guitar, kind of cut his teeth on this guitar, so to say. I just know that all of his guitars sound incredible, so I didn't have any any worry about that. But it was a in- really interesting process. He sort of said, what, what do you want it to sound like? And I think all I said was earthy. And that's exactly what he's done, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So it it does sound beautiful and Mm. you must feel something coming from it when you're playing it, you know, of the Cairngorms. Yes, it's so lovely that it's got that connection to that area. And it's quite incredible when I first picked it up and took it home and I was sat there tentatively singing one of the songs and there's a sound hole in the side of the guitar as well. So as well as the top, there's one in the side. And I could really hear the guitar, the sound of it, more than I do with any other guitar I've played, kind of resonating through my body, but also singing. I was sat there singing unaccompanied, just kind of holding the guitar and singing a song. And the guitar resonated with my voice because of this sound also. The sound was travelling through there and travelling over the strings, and it created this incredible sort of resonant sound and I just cried. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. No, because that must have been such a powerful emotional experience. Yeah, especially knowing where the guitar came from and the meaning of that and it being made by a friend and yeah, the whole thing was very special. So this is St Ninian's Chapel. Yeah. You can just see the outline of it still there in stone with the grasses growing up over it now but... Incredibly thick, one metre thick walls. And presumably there's been quite a bit of archaeology here, has there? Yeah, well, I think they found like a hoard (laughs) in the 50s that they think was probably buried when Vikings maybe came to Shetland. And it was full of silver on this land On this very spot? Yeah. Wow. And there's some pictures here, I think, of some of the artefacts that were found. Yeah. The Shetland schoolboy discovered the remains of a wooden box containing 28 silver objects and the jawbone of a porpoise. You must have been quite pleased. I know, you'd think so. It's amazing what turns up here, though. I was reading the other day in the Shetland Times that a young child had been digging in their garden and found, I can't even remember what the object was now, but you think, just, it's incredible. It's probably, you know, thousands of years old. Yes, Um, so the sense of history here in Shetland is is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, this is, I think this is a 12th century 
chapel yes. that yeah. we're looking at but you know you can go back thousands of years yeah. can't you and, and human oh, habitation yeah. was here yeah definitely there's an amazing site just down the coast called Jarlshof and there, I think there's like 6,000 years of history on that site from the very early settlement right through to sort of Viking times and then the modern day has all been on that one site which is just absolutely mind-blowing there's obviously something about that area that people have really valued You know, listening to things as well, going out for a walk and listening in a way and knowing, oh, there's a, you know, there's a skylark over there or there's some curly or there's this. And it kind of opens up another dimension for me when I'm out walking. And I think that's what struck me about Nan Shepherd's book as well, is that's very much what it's about. It's about being, really being in that place. And what about the role of music in your life? Did that start early on? Yeah, so I played the piano from when I was seven and then got a guitar for my birthday one year and played it a little bit but not a great deal and did bits and bobs of music throughout my undergrad studying animal ecology. And were you then, listening to music? Were you listening to other yeah, people's music? a lot of folk music so my mum and dad's LP collection of brilliant folk rock which is still you know one of my favourite. <laughs> so what were you listening to Ron Rigg and? No kind no. of Crosby Stills and Nash and, oh. and that kind of Neil Young it was very much 70s I suppose Bob Dylan and the Martin Carthy all of that sort of thing. It's always been valued in my family the music side even though they're not necessarily musical themselves there's a great appreciation for it and pretty much every weekend when I was growing up there'd be a Cayley, there was an amazing Cayley band called Clack and Yell that used to play in pretty much every other village hall. You know, they'd rotate around the village halls every weekend and me and my friends would go and I would get a free ticket if I sang a song at the interval. So that's how I kind of started to do that. And then it was actually coming up to Fair Isle and meeting Lisa Sinclair and doing more music with her, which inspired me to start doing more and more. And who's Lisa Sinclair? Tell us about her. So Lisa Sinclair was an amazing musician and poet who lived in Fair Isle, Inga Thompson's cousin, and just a beautiful human being. And I have really fond memories of being around her house, putting the world to rights over cups of coffee and singing and harmonising and just having fun with music. And unfortunately, she died several years ago but you know sorely missed and a, a wonderful human who created beautiful albums herself she made a lovely album called a time to keep based on george mckay brown's book which i'd highly recommend going to check out because mm. it's really stunning so she was something of an inspiration for you absolutely yeah yeah i don't you know it's one of those things you meet a series of people that you wonder how your life would look differently if you'd not met them and she's one of those people mm. And then when I went to do my PhD, I started doing more singing at Cayley's for free Cayley tickets <laughs> and slowly sort of built up enough material to record an EP and met Johnny Hardy, who I play with sometimes in a trio. He's another one of these people, very inspiring and very encouraging. And it got to a point when I was just finishing up my PhD and I thought this is the time to try giving music a go as a full time job. And that was five years ago now. <laughs> Still going pretty Still well. Still going pretty well, yeah. <laughs> so you're going to sing another song for us now. Can you tell us what this is about? Yeah, it's a, a song called Salvage that I wrote with Boo Hewardeen about a friend of mine called Helen Denley. She takes scrap metal and turns it into 
these incredible sculptures, some of them massive sculptures of animals. And I don't know if you've ever seen the massive giraffes in Edinburgh. Yes, I have. Yeah, so yes. she made those. Oh, did she? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right, those wonderful metal giraffes. Oh, the, the incredible. Sit, yeah, yeah I, made I have out seen of them. old engines and cogs and wheels and, you know, all sorts of amazing bits of machinery that other people cast aside because it doesn't work anymore. But she sees something in that and turns it into giraffes or chameleons or owls or whatever it is and it's just beautiful pieces of work.
Jenny Sturgeon on Shetland. Well, if you enjoyed this episode and you love what we do, why not think about becoming a patron of Folk on Foot? We offer great rewards. For example, for our heroes, our top-level patrons, you can get access to Folk on Foot on Film, which is an amazing archive of more than 100 songs that we've filmed on location on our travels around the United Kingdom. Uh, we'd love you to subscribe to that or at one of the other tiers where we also offer rewards. And every penny you give us goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. And we depend entirely on contributions from our listeners to keep going. So if you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. All you have to do is go to folkonfoot.com and then click on the Support Us button. We'd really love to have your support. We are absolutely passionate about making Folk on Foot. We love the music, we love the landscape, and we hope you do too. Thank you.